This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Mandela Barnes, Democratic nominee for Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning the primary. Thank you so much and thanks for having me uh, today. It's an exciting time. Yeah, we're glad to have you. So Mandela, what was the journey running up to the primary? I know there are some pretty bizarre stories right before the election. How do you end up winning by a 36 point margin? It was a lot of hard work. Uh, We ran a real grassroots campaign. We engaged a lot of volunteers. We delivered a positive message. And that's what people have been missing in the state for a very long time. Uh, You know, the first three uh, campaigns against Scott Walker have only been against Scott Walker. And we said, you know, we're not going to run that kind of campaign. We're going to, of course, highlight the failures of the last eight years, but we're also going to talk about a positive path forward. We're also going to offer a vision about expanding health care, about raising the minimum wage, about protecting the environment, about uh, advancing the cause of public education. And that's what people need to know. Uh, over the last eight years, people can kind of understand what's been going wrong. Uh, but if they haven't been offered uh, a different vision, a different path forward, uh, then they aren't going to show up to vote. And so we talked to people all across the state. We visited so many counties, uh, got engaged with grassroots activists. And I started out as a grassroots organizer. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't uh, anything that was necessarily new to me. It was just a much larger scale. And we got so many grassroots donors, so many people on the phones, people knocking on doors, people sending text messages. And that's how we that's how we won, because we were outspent by a whole lot. Uh, As of July 30th, I think we were outspent five to one. So, Mandela, the position of lieutenant governor isn't particularly sexy. I don't think a lot of people even know what the position entails. Could you tell us about it and why it's actually important? Yeah. It wasn't sexy. (laughs) No, but um, I will say that the office of lieutenant governor in the state of Wisconsin uh, doesn't come with a lot of responsibility that you would find in other states. But what there is is influence and being elected statewide and being able to be an asset uh, to the top of the ticket is what's really important. It means that we are going to be we're not just going to be talking about engaging young voters. We're not just talking about engaging voters of color. Um, I am a 31 year old black man from the city of Milwaukee. Uh, And it's not a, it's not a them conversation. It's not a they conversation. It's a we conversation uh, that I get to have. And oftentimes this conversation is with people who don't typically show up in midterm elections. And when they always ask, well, why didn't the can or why didn't people show up to vote? My response is why didn't the candidates show up? And so right now there is a unique opportunity. I'm the youngest person on the ballot running statewide uh, this year in the state of Wisconsin. And I get to have those conversations with my friends, uh, with people who are, you know, in my generation, people who fit my demo. But the office of lieutenant governor, uh, you know, in the event that we do win this election and 
Uh, all signs point to us being successful in November, uh, but I see it as a chance for us to create an office of innovation. I think that we need to look at Wisconsin for the next 10, 15, 25 years and beyond. And also want to play a role uh, in the legislative process. I am a former state representative, was elected when I was 25 back in 2012. And after the legislature had the opportunity to work for a group called State Innovation Exchange, we provide research and policy support to progressive state legislators across the country. And I want to take the work that I did in legislature, the work that I did in private life, and make sure that we are advancing a bold, progressive agenda in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, I want us to get elected, and I want us to govern like we only have 90 days to do it. I want us to go as big and bold as we can on protecting the environment and also uh, creating renewable energy programs to put people to work. I want us to be bold in expanding health care, creating a public option for our Medicaid program, which is called Badger Care in Wisconsin. Uh, I want to make sure that we're taking big, bold steps uh, to improve our economy. So you mentioned the failures of the past eight years. Could you tell us a little more about those? So when Governor Walker uh, came into office, immediately he got to work. He governed like he only had 90 days to do it. Uh, he began his attack on public sector, uh, public sector union employees uh, by dismantling, uh, by ending their, the right to collectively bargain. Uh, he made drastic cuts to public education, historic cuts to public education, I should say, uh, cuts to public trans to the state share of uh, public transportation spending. It was cut, cut, cut. He rolled back environmental regulations. Uh, he has not been a uh, he's not been a friend to working people, and he also made a lot of political decisions uh, to advance his own cause. Uh, the decisions he made uh, were to get towards, excuse me, to line him up uh, for his future run for president. And that's something that didn't work out for anybody. He rejected the $800 million in high-speed rail money. He didn't take the Medicaid expansion, which has left uh, a lot of people uncovered in the state of Wisconsin, but it's also driven up costs uh, for the average uh, person buying health insurance. Uh, the people in Minnesota, which is right next door to us, they pay about uh, half as much on average as we do uh, to pay for health insurance. So uh, these are some of the you know, economic cuts and also, you know, getting rid of things like the earned income tax credit. Uh, the list goes on. It goes on and on and on. And we have to reverse that trend. We have to make Wisconsin a place uh, that is actually uh, open for everyone, not just open for business, which is Governor Walker's uh, motto, which is his slogan. So you mentioned being a grassroots organizer prior to running for office. Could you tell us about that background? Absolutely. So I work for a group called MICA, which is Milwaukee Inner City Congregations Ally for Hope. It's an organization of churches, synagogues, mosques, uh, faith-based organizations that advance the cause of social justice. We worked on issues of jobs and economic development, education, immigration reform, and also treatment instead of prison. Uh, I don't know if you know or not, but Wisconsin... Uh, we have a we have the highest rate of black male incarceration in the state or excuse me, in the United States. We spend about a billion and a half dollars to put people in prison each year. And another uh, tale of two states, Minnesota does it much more effectively. They have the same basically the same state population, the same demographic breakdown, the same crime rate. Yet they incarcerate half as many people uh, as we incarcerate in the state of Wisconsin. And it is a drain on the economy. And it all, it's also pretty bad for communities. Uh, we have a pretty high recidivism rate as well. People who go into prison are much more likely uh, to go back. And that's a dangerous trend that we have to reverse because when people go back home, they need to have skills. They need to be ready to go into the job market. They need to be ready to advance their education. All things uh, that would cost much less 
than sending them back to prison. So what measures do you want to take to reduce mass incarceration? Uh, we have a lot of nonviolent offenders. We have a lot of people who are in prison uh, because of mental health issues. And when we don't treat those issues, if these people go to prison, uh, chances are we're going to make a much uh, a bad situation much worse. And if we don't allocate the uh, resources to treating mental health, uh, then we're going to continue to see our prison rate increase. If we have people who are in jail for nonviolent drug offenses, uh, then we're going to be in trouble. We're going to we're going to see uh, we're going to see us go down a, a far worse path than we're already on. Since the turn of the century, the state of Wisconsin has uh, begun to spend more money on our Department of Corrections than we have on our University of Wisconsin system as a whole. So there have been a lot of progressive criminal justice reform policies that have been proposed. We have seen some of them implemented, for example, by Philadelphia DA Larry Krasner. Are you familiar with any of these proposals? Yeah, I know he ended cash bail. He did a few other uh, pretty bold reforms from the DA's office. I was have been, have been following his work a, a, a little bit. Uh, but also, like I said, the more that we invest on the front end, education, job programs, uh, the less we'll have to spend on incarceration. So I do support a lot of what uh, what's going on in Philadelphia, but I also uh, you know, want to be sure that we invest in preventative measures. And it's the same way with schools, right? Uh, there's no such thing as a, as, a, as a failing school, only a failed community. And when we have failed communities that lead to challenged schools, uh, we end up with a bloated uh, criminal or with, an, with a bloated prison population. One proposal that a lot of criminal justice and drug policy experts have made is decriminalizing drug addiction by decriminalizing possession. Is that something you would be in favor of? Well, absolutely. So in my time in the legislature, I introduced a bill to, I mean, to decriminalize marijuana. And of course, I supported full legalization. Uh, just looking at the reality of where the legislature stood, I introduced uh, decriminalization. So anybody with 25 grams or under uh, would only at, would at the most be subject to a ticket, um, a municipal offense. Uh, so I, I definitely think that drug addiction should not be criminalized. It should be treated. And that's why I was a strong advocate of treatment instead of prison before I was a legislator as a as an organizer. That's the work that I had the had the great fortune of, uh, of working with some really great advocates and some wonderful community members and also people who had been impacted because that's the important thing uh, about the work that's often left out is are people who have been impacted aren't always a part of the conversation. And so we had conversations with them and I mean, these aren't jailable offenses because the only victim and a lot of these instances are the user themselves. Could you tell us a bit more about your background as a legislator? What were your greatest achievements? Yep. So uh, in the legislature, again, I was 25 when I was elected and I came into almost a, a Republican supermajority. Uh, governor Scott Walker uh, was the governor. So there wasn't a whole lot that was getting passed, uh, but I did have a chance to be the ranking Democrat on the Committee on Corrections. Uh, I had a chance to work on uh, legislation that was very important to me, uh, very important to the community I represented, 
And it spoke to you know, my experiences as a public school graduate in the city of Milwaukee, like introducing the community school bill, which makes sure that students are resourced before and after they leave the school building. Uh, we know that students show up to school on uneven, uneven playing field. And that means if students are coming to school hungry, they're not going to learn the same way uh, that students who don't have that uh, type of stress. Students who are homeless in Milwaukee public schools, one out of 19 students uh, suffer, deals with homelessness. And these are these are students who obviously are going to be at a significant disadvantage relative to their counterparts. So the community school model means that we make sure uh, that we are creating a holistic education, making sure that there are wraparound services for students, but also services for parents, uh, job training programs in the school, uh, helping them to be active and engaged in the learning process. And so having that conversation, because it's not one that always happened, uh, it's something that's been ignored. And bringing a perspective that many other legislators had that did not share so it was an achievement in itself. Uh, been able to have those conversations with my peers who would have never thought about some of these things before, and also uh, getting to chair the legislature's Black and Latino Caucus was something that was uh, something that was very important uh, during my time. So, in regards to that Republican supermajority you mentioned, that can be credited to extreme gerrymandering. Could you tell us how that happened and what you hope to do to fix the problem? So Wisconsin has some of the worst gerrymandering. And like I said, when Scott Walker came into office, he governed like he only had 90 days. They did everything that they could in a very short amount of time. And that's that's what I want us to do. I want us to to go uh, as big and bold as possible. And they drew some of the worst maps in the entire country uh, once they were elected because their only goal after they got power was to keep power. And so it created this dangerous race to the right. It created uh, some of the most extreme, regressive policy proposals that the state has ever seen. Things that our previous uh, Republican administrations would have never imagined doing it. And they only did it because they had the power to do so. And so with that said, uh, the maps that were challenged in court made it all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court kicked it back down to the lower courts. And now we're still in limbo with this, which makes uh, this election so important because we have to win if we ever want to uh, be sure that uh, this state won't be subject uh, to the extreme gerrymandering that we've seen. And you look at even the years that we lost the top of the ticket, 2010, 2000, or excuse me, 2014, uh, Case in point, even 2016, the amount of votes. So you look at Hillary Clinton's vote share and Donald Trump's vote share it was a narrow margin, maybe 22,000 voters. So it's 49 percent, 49 percent. We still came back with 35 percent of the seats in the assembly, which goes to tell you something. Forty nine percent of people in the state of in the state of Wisconsin in 2016 voted for Democrats. Yet we only had 35 percent of the seats in our lower house. So I'm glad you brought up Trump's slim margin of victory in 2016, because earlier this year, University of Wisconsin-Madison political scientist Kenneth Mayer found that as many as 45,000 eligible voters in Wisconsin were deterred from voting in 2016 because of your state's voter ID law, which of course is huge in and of itself, but even more devastating given that Trump won Wisconsin by just under 23,000 votes. Are you worried that voter suppression could swing the results of this year's election as well? So voter ID was definitely an issue. And I also like to point out the fact that Donald Trump uh, got fewer votes than Mitt Romney in Wisconsin two years ago. 
But I also want to point to, you know, the lack of uh, voter enthusiasm. That was a real thing. That was a real hurdle uh, that we have to overcome. And while voter ID is terrible and while some people uh, may have been deterred from voting, I think that overall we still have to inspire voters. And last Tuesday's primary election, more people showed up to vote for Democrats, almost 100,000. I want to say about 96,000 more people showed up to vote for Democrats than Republicans. Uh, So the enthusiasm is on our side. People are more excited uh, to vote for something different in the state of Wisconsin. And Republicans aren't fully uh, sold on uh, what they've been getting for the for the last eight years. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. The Nationwide prison strike it's relevant to voting rights because the 10th demand is, quote, the voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees, and so-called, quote-unquote, ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. All voices count. Do you agree with this demand? So I definitely don't think that the right uh, to vote should be taken away from any citizen. Uh, I've long championed restoration of voting rights immediately once someone has served their sentence. And I mean, honestly, even when someone is is, is locked up and we have people who are in prison who are counted in uh, in districts for which also aid to gerrymandering and make some districts seem more diverse than they actually are. Uh, So there are a, a lot of things. I wish that was also added into the into the mix with that, because people who are in prison should not be added uh, to counts of citizens for the purposes of, of drawing maps. So that reflects uh, some pretty big problems with our census. The census is, you know, not a sexy issue, but it's gotten some attention recently because of the Trump administration's plans to A, not include LGBTQ representation, which Democrats hoped would be the first time LGBTQ people in history are recorded in the United States Census, as well as to ask a citizenship question. What are your thoughts on these two proposals by the Trump administration? I mean, the Trump administration has shown that they have this over-willingness to make people feel less than human. This is another way. I mean, it speaks to the same way they treat people at the border. It speaks to the whole concept of building a wall. Uh, And uh, it's like a race to create a superior race in many aspects. And it is... It can seem very extreme, but 
that is the direction that we're headed. It's something we have to do everything that we can uh, to stop that. And I think that a lot of that starts at the state level. State level resistance is necessary. I'm really glad to hear you say that this is about essentially ethnic cleansing. We don't see politicians willing to admit that very often. Well, that's the thing. It, it doesn't just ha- it doesn't just happen right away, right? Like it, these things aren't just aren't just so apparent. There's a there's a buildup over time, and you, and you get to that place, and next thing you know, it uh, we become a uh, the kind of state uh, that we would com- be compelled to go to war with. What proposals do you have? What could you do as a state leader to support racial justice? Absolutely, and that that means having those conversations. Many times the conversations just have not been had. Wisconsin is a state that has been consistently ranked the worst place uh, to raise a to raise a black child to start a a, a family as a as a black person. And the disparities that we have, whether they're in education, whether they're in income, I mean, we have to be really real about this stuff. And that means confronting the reality. And people have tried to run away from the conversation. Uh, for far too long, and people have been too uncomfortable to have that conversation. And it has only led to worse outcomes for everybody. I mean, there's growth and equity. And that's the conversation I get across when I go to parts of the state uh, that are less diverse. I, I have this conversation with people. And, you know, they get it. People get it. That's the that's the other thing about it. I mean, there are political leaders who are unwilling to have the conversation. But there are so many uh, everyday people who who actually understand what's at stake here. We can't just have any one race of people, any one uh, demographic who's doing so much worse uh, than the rest of the population on average and expect things to be fine for everyone. And there's the collective conversation uh, that, that has to happen, that has to take place. So a big part of this is obviously law enforcement and the systemic racism we've seen in law enforcement. Just recently, we saw the Milwaukee County Sheriff. We saw the election have a big change there from the previous office holder, David Clark, who's kind of been infamous for supporting Trump's quote-unquote law and order agenda. What do you hope to do to systemically and racism in law enforcement. So we, we are lucky to have elected the sheriff that we did, Ernell Lucas, who's a friend of mine, who's someone that I supported. And we currently have an acting sheriff. So Ernell Lucas won't take office until January, actually. Uh, but, I mean, on the topic of the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Department, there's just a recently released video of, uh, of sheriff's deputies with their guns drawn on a person uh, it was a traffic stop, and the person who was driving the car had both hands out of the window, and at the same time, sheriffs had their their guns drawn on this black male, and he said, "Well, why do you have your guns out?" And the deputy responded, "Because you're not white." And our acting sheriff went on to defend the behavior of those deputies and saying that there was no racially charged language, while the video showed otherwise. And this is video from uh, from a from a person who was on Facebook Live, and we may have never seen that if this person uh, wasn't recording. So it is. I do believe that there is a new day in the sheriff's office. Uh, this candidate, Ernell Lucas, was supported uh, by a number of progressive organizations, uh, multiracial uh, organizations, uh, who have had enough with the way that you know Sheriff Clark handled affairs uh, in that office. So I, I do think that a better day. Uh, with at least the sheriff's department is at, is at hand right now in the city of, or in Milwaukee County, I should say. I think what this kind of gets down to 
the big underlying question here is how do we define crime and what is criminalized? You know, in this case, it is blackness that is criminalized. But you talked earlier as well about how drug addiction is criminalized, about how poverty is criminalized. How would you hope to redefine crime to actually deal with the root causes of these problems rather than just the symptoms, and especially to hold those in power accountable rather than working class people who are simply desperate. And that's the problem. Many times there isn't even a crime that's committed. There is a suspicion that crime has been committed because of who this person is, uh, whether it's from a racial lens, whether it's from a, an economic lens, uh, or regardless of what the case is. And it takes retraining uh, police officers. It takes retraining uh, law enforcement to understand uh, that everybody you think may be a criminal or the person that fits the profile isn't always the criminal. And until law enforcement understands that, we're going to have some uh, terrible outcomes like we've been having, uh, not only in the city of Milwaukee, uh, but across the entire country. I mean, the same way that we have to reform government to meet the needs of people, because so many people have been left behind, I don't think that uh, law enforcement is any different in that regard, uh, because People have been left behind by law enforcement. You have people who are afraid uh, to contact law enforcement. People who are afraid to call the cops because they don't know uh, how that uh, interaction is going to end up. They don't know how that encounter uh, will turn out. And lastly, where can folks find you online and what can they do to get involved in your campaign? Yeah, so uh, I am on Twitter at the other Mandela. My website is MandelaBarnes.com. Uh, if you're in Wisconsin, we'd love to have your help. If you're not in Wisconsin, we'll still love to have your help. We host uh, a lot of virtual phone banks. It's going to be a sprint to November 3rd. And I, I do believe that we're going to get this done. I want as many people uh, as possible to get involved and engage with the campaign. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. And we'd love to have you on again after you win in November. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love to come back on. Yeah, that would be great. Now, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, support us through our Patreon, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes for more conversations with great candidates like Mandela. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.